1: I also work with gender-questioning teenagers and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues.
0: We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's
1: unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. We're really looking forward to our second wider lens renewal retreat at the very end of October.
0: Yes, it's going to be right here in my backyard in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona.
1: It was a really special occasion, and it really did seem to be truly transformative. And parents who attended last time were very keen to come together for another retreat.
0: Yeah, and for those of you who didn't attend last time, this is a retreat for parents who are seeking a deeper understanding of themselves and of their gender-questioning child.
1: And it's also for parents who need some time out, for some self-reflection, and who want to parent with more confidence. Yeah, so please join me,
0: Stella, and our dear friend and colleague, Lisa Marciano, in Scottsdale, Arizona this fall. The Eventbrite link will be in the show notes, and you can also Google Wider Lens Renewal Retreat Arizona. We hope to see you there. Stella, we are back to talk some more about desistance today.
1: Yeah, it's, it's one of those highly emotional kind of subjects because so many, so many people we know in this world are chasing desistance. And um, you'd wonder. It, it reminds me of a lot of things to do with, I suppose, mental health. Is if you chase it too tightly, if you get too heavy a grip on it, you can undo it. And it's so un- it's so hard. And I know I'm annoying people mm. right at the beginning to try and keep it's like a <laughs> loose, loose rein, like a horse. I always think of like a horse that mm. you've got a bit of control, but it's it's kind of core body control as opposed to gripping the rein tightly. And Yeah, Yeah. that's where I see desistance. I do know that a lot of parents are trying to bring about desistance. And for years and years, I worked in the field of addiction and people used to ask me, it was probably the most common question, can you bring it forward? Can people who are in the addicted world, can they cut the lost years? Do they have to have seven years of of distress before they they give up? Or Mm -hmm. can it be made shorter and nobody's ever answered that. I I, I don't think we have to, why do some people desist quickly? Why do some people take it a long time? And yet there's an awful lot of valuable things you've especially, I think, learned in this world. But there are things we can take away and themes we can notice.
0: For sure, for sure. So maybe I mean we can start out by describing what what might be some indicators that perhaps a parent or a loved one or a sibling or a partner could see that creates a question in their mind like, hmm, is this person desisting? You know, like, I'm not sure, but it looks like maybe they are. And I, I get this a lot. I'm sure you get this too in the GDSN meetings or like whenever you talk with families. Sometimes parents believe or maybe hope or suspect that their kid might be desisting, but it's not really clear. And I think you're so right about riding a horse. I mean, there's something a bit ephemeral about it. And like once you try to grasp it, like steam, it kind of disappears into the air. So we'll talk a little bit about how might it look if perhaps somebody could be desisting. So for, for me, what comes to mind, um, it's probably a little different for females than it is for males, but for females, I sometimes see as we've talked about in the non-binary episode, a more kind of um, flexible label has been adopted. So if your daughter, for example, went from being a really stark, uh, sudden transition to trans man, social transition, and then she ends up identifying as non-binary, that seems like a step away from something that's perhaps a little bit more polarizing to something a bit more flexible or neutral. So sometimes a step into an agender gender or non-binary gender could be an indication of moving towards desistance.
1: Yeah, and often if if the parent is is become very very knowledgeable about this world and frankly very distressed about this world, they can be very kind of anti the move from from trans man to, for example, a non-binary. And they can be dismissive and even you know, deriding the, this. And wh- you and I seem to agree that we basically almost always see it as a positive. Any sort of fluidity, any sort of movement is generally good. And parents don't. They're like, oh, God, it's another label. And th- that, th- that yeah. makes me sad. And I do think it's something to be lifted. I'm really glad you lifted it right up from the off, that some sort of change of label is generally in our world a good thing because it feels like movement is happening, entrenchment is is loosening and some sort of fluidity to who they are is happening. And all of those things are good.
0: Yeah, I think it indicates a kind of psychological flexibility, which within the world of therapy, we know is a really beneficial trait to cultivate in oneself or to develop. So if you can be psychologically flexible about who you are, how you identify, what your expectations are of the world, of others. Um, And this goes way beyond gender. I think that's a positive thing. So, you know, this might also look like being less rigid about the presentation that they put out to the world. So if your son, let's say, this is not so common with boys. So let me use a realistic example. If your daughter insisted on only leaving the house, if she's got the binder on, her haircut is short enough, she's wearing certain clothes, she puts on a different voice she like hunches over but then you notice that she'll kind of leave the house wearing her you know gender-neutral pajamas every now and then or maybe she picks out a shirt that has more of a floral pattern or she puts on a skirt or eyeliner or earrings and you're like oh I haven't seen that in a while I think that flexibility around presentation could also indicate maybe if it's not indicating a desistance per se it's indicating like you said, a fluidity, which I think is actually very, very healthy, regardless of where it goes.
1: Yeah. Because like you say, psychological fluidity is, is a sign. Flexibility is a sign of good mental health. And psychological rigidity is generally not, not a great sign. What is your response to uh, the questions the parents often ask me, which is, she's worn a dress, what do I say? Like, she hasn't worn a dress in three years. Yeah, and she's I said, would say okay,
0: don't say anything. Don't say anything. That, my, my instinct is don't say anything. Is um, Generally, I think, you know, you, you've also talked about this when you described your experience of desistance last time. Had somebody pointed it out to you, it just made you feel so mortified and it made it harder. Seen. So I say, yeah. These kids are working so hard to try and sort this out. Just give them some space. Give them some space and let them
1: figure it out. And I find I find you're right. And I find a lot of parents want to comment on the expression. And I find I'm fighting almost with the parents going, no, 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 you don't you don't have to comment. You don't have to say, now look, proof, flowery skirt gotcha and I'm like nah definitely not encourage him by saying nothing (laughs) yeah
0: Yeah. it's even hard because sometimes parents just want to say oh you look nice but they're nervous to say that and I think they should be nervous they should be very very cautious about calling too much attention to the child's appearance or how she's presenting herself or how he's presenting himself Um, and And I've seen
1: teenagers as well yeah, I've seen teenagers as well, and they've said like, my mother got so hung up in the fact I wore pink or a flowery skirt yeah. or a shirt or whatever, and they don't understand that you know boys can be feminine too, and that that doesn't mean anything, and so off we go into a kind of whoa into a whole world, and sometimes I wonder is there the the, the kid is going through something and exploring different identities, and the more that the parent maybe questions them the more that the child feels hassled to to land and label themselves, if you follow me, because you agree. Yeah,
0: I totally agree, especially because this is a time of exploration for all teenagers. And so they're in a place of flux, perhaps. And, um, you know, what we'll, we'll keep thinking through also the way the the landscape around gender identity keeps changing even i think within like gender clinics that i don't really agree with them they keep changing their narrative too about like what affirmation care is and whether or not medicalization is necessary so kids are changing their perceptions of stuff and i think sometimes parents uh, are doing their best to understand this right so they go on to twitter or the internet or start reading articles and if you read only gender critical articles, you're going to keep seeing the same narrative about the over-medicalization of children, which of course you and I agree is a really big problem. But I'm also aware that if you're not, if you and your kid aren't really talking about gender, it's become the elephant in the room, you might suspect that there's a, a strong desire for medicalization in your child's mind, but in reality, maybe they're past that and they're just like... I'm totally fine being a trans man, and I like to wear pink, and I'm not interested in medicalization, and I never will be. So they're maybe playing with labels, or they're playing with kind of identity markers, they're playing with language. And the parent might be really concerned that every step the kid takes is an indication of moving towards medicalization. So I, I just, I think it's important that we're lifting this up, because sometimes there is a bit of a disconnect between what the parent suspects is going on and what the kid is thinking. And I think this is especially true for older teens or teens who have been trans identified for many, many years.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that there can be a real issue around the, the parent reading too much gender critical, becoming an activist, and the, the child has become an activist the other way. And a power struggle happens, and it isn't good for the family, and it's entirely understandable and I still think it's it's not good it's, it's, it doesn't work out it doesn't work out because the, a power struggle has happened it's been po- politicized the, the 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 issues within the personal family have been politicized and it's it's really it's like your your father's a capitalist and you're a communist it's That's it's right. not going well. It's yeah. so
0: much like that. It's so much like
1: that. Yeah. And like, I really agree that the parents really do need to educate themselves. They need to know more than the, per- the child so that they can kind of speak with authority. And they also have to be very wary around the activism, around the kind of, you know, the Twitter wars and stuff like that, because... It's You You have a strong feeling that the kids know, even if the parents say that I'm secret, they have no idea you think they know.
0: Yeah, I think the kids know. And I think, um, you know, I think it's tough because I, I often encourage parents, just like what um, Rita Kertu said, you know, to talk with their children and share some of their opinions and share some of their perspectives. But I think that the, the challenge of that is like if every time you have a conversation with your child, you're trying to weave in some like clandestine lesson about gender and self-acceptance. The kid is going to notice and they're going to hmm. smell that from a million miles away. They just know, you know, and it, it's like if you think about the important individuation process that we've talked about, teenagers are trying to find a unique sense of identity independent from their parents, and it's necessary for them to do that. And so if a parent is leaning in too hard, what's happened is that the parent has built their identity as a gender critical person around opposing the thing that their kid is obsessed with. So not only does that create a lot of tension, but it actually prevents individuation because you know, like I, I talked to a lot of parents who were like, oh my gosh, I found my daughter's secret Twitter account or secret Instagram account. And then I, I know that sometimes kids discover their parents' secret Twitter account and secret Instagram account. And so if you discover as a 17, 18, 20 year old that your parents have built a hobby around opposing your trans oh identity, God. you don't know how to get out from underneath that that crushing observation you're like under the microscope still you know so if they're trying to individuate and you as a parent have become really involved in the movement per se I do think that sets up a really tricky dynamic and I I empathize with the parents completely because as you know I mean this whole podcast is about trying to point out there's a medical scandal happening. I very much believe that. Yeah. And you got to take care of your home life first in a lot of cases. Not everyone. Some people really need to get involved as a way of self-healing. But if you have a kid still locked into the identity, just be mindful that that, that is it's still something they're going to be aware of, even if you think you're doing a really good job of hiding it.
1: Yeah. And it's good. It's good advice anyway, I think, that if you are kind of becoming political about your child's issue, you're probably missing the personal. You're probably too uptight to be able to speak about it with with the calmness that is necessary. Now, I know what everything we're saying here is probably incredibly irritating because it's like, well, Oh, my God, don't try too hard, but try hard <laughs> and don't do this. <laughs> like, it's so difficult. I always think it's like the Goldilocks syndrome that we're asking them, you know, to do it just right. And it's so hard. And we get it wrong. We all get it wrong. Parenting, you get it wrong every day. I particularly, I spectacularly got it wrong yesterday, by the way, <laughs> with my kids. You know what I mean? It's, it's so easy to, to, to say it and so difficult to do it. And like, I, I can see why, you know, if, if the desistance seems to be happening and you could be palpitating going, oh, my God, I meant to not say something. I meant to not say something. Uh, well, what will I do? I'm shaking. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. shaking. I can. You know what I mean? And that is how intense it feels because the stakes are They're so, so high. high. Yeah, That's. That's the problem. It feels like you're on a cliff face for sure. And you're supposed to be relaxed about the fact they're walking along it. I
0: know. I know. And I I feel the same way in therapy. I mean, I've had many moments in therapy where my heart is pounding out of my chest and I'm there's almost like a Rolodex in my mind of like, what should I say? What should I say? If I say the wrong thing, I could this person's on a tightrope. And one side is safe and one side is not safe. And I'm like terrified of saying the wrong thing. So there's, I don't mean in any way to imply that this is really easy. Just don't, don't say the wrong thing. But I just, I want parents (laughs) to be mindful of that just so that they have that awareness because it's such a tricky dance that parents and kids are, are playing together. It's like this complicated dance and, um,
1: incredibly.
0: And desistance always feels so precarious, like it always feels like it's so slippery.
1: And there's there's also an issue like, you know, there is a hereditary element to to, you know, autism, for example, ADHD and certain conditions do seem to have a strong kind of genetic element. And so sometimes you can have very definitely, you know, a certain rigid thinking and your child has that rigid thinking as well and you're up against each other and that that's really hard I think that's where you have to think to yourself I need support whatever about the child I need support. I need a hand here
0: yeah especially if there's kind of really extreme views like when you think about the family as a system I find it very interesting when you have a kid who holds like the most politically radical extreme views and maybe the parent is like on the far 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 gender critical side and I, I don't know if that's a coincidence I think those are kind of dynamics that feed into one another so you're right I think if there's a tendency towards very rigid black and white thinking within a family context then Lo and behold, around the teenage years, like you said, kid takes one pole, the parent takes the other pole. And so, you know, to, to kind of return back to the question of desistance, if you are a parent in that place and you are watching your child develop what seems to be more flexibility around it, I think the moral of the story is don't go talking about it quite yet. I would really give it some yeah. time. And as a, as a rule of thumb, what I say about this is just that if you feel like your child has had a good solid, you know, six to six months to a year where they're referring to themselves with their birth sex, and they're kind of the ones initiating this return to their natal gender, then maybe after a long solid time there, you can um, kind of revisit it and say, you know, I've seen you experiment with your identity and your aesthetic for a while. And, you seem to be pretty happy, you know, if you ever want to talk about it, I'm here. And that's a neutral way of saying, you know, I'm curious of what's happened with you.
1: Oh, Sasha, that's lovely. You'd be a lovely therapist for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you're right. I think, you know, it reminds me of when the kid first comes out, maybe as trans, and uh, me and you often say, play it cool, like yeah. zip it and play it cool. Yeah. Don't go all in. Don't shoot your mouth off. You know, don't get get frantic, pull back and, you know, kind of go quiet and have a think. The very same with the desistance, play it cool. You know what I mean? Don't over over play your hand at all. And what I loved about the way you phrased that was you said, and you seem happier because that's where I think I put the emphasis on. You seem in good form these days. you you know what I mean, that's where I think they might be happier talking about whether they're in good form or happier or life seems to be a bit easier rather than, let's now discuss gender do you know what I mean I, I, I I think that would, I would find that combative and I would imagine kids who've been through that would find it a combative and I think it's more, it's an easier way in, is to discuss their happiness and their levels of anxiety and you know what I mean and things like that, I do think Having said all of that, that there can be kind of a stranglehold of silence on the family where maybe the kid seems to have desisted, but everybody is saying nothing because nobody says there's often a communication issue in this in these families. If I was to say a common thread, that's definitely one of them. And so there's this silence. So I'm like talking to maybe the family or the parents and I'm like literally gender has not come up in 11 months and they're like no we have not said one word it's like wow okay right that's a long time and they're like they're afraid to say anything and I'm like that seems extreme too and I know we're, we're kind of contradicting ourselves we're trying to say a little bit without getting too intense as opposed to ramming their you know like studies down their throat and um, the other extreme is utter silence. Like, and that is rarely a good thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, wh- when I think about what you're lifting up here, it's like there are underlying communication challenges in each family. We, we, all, we all experience those. So the key is that gender is going to exacerbate or kind of bring about the pre-existing communication difficulties in a really concentrated manner. So if this is an avoiding kind of family, then they're going to be avoiding till the cows come home. And then if this is a very combative, like arguing and debating constantly family, that's going to happen in this context too. So I think it always brings out whatever difficulties pre-existed in the family. So I think, I think you're right. I think having that long, long period of silence, I would guess in a family like that, maybe that's just one of the challenges they face with communication. Maybe they're the avoiding kind of family. But what about, um, what about timelines for desistance? Because I know you work with parents and you also work with parents of desisted kids. So I'm really curious about that. But I've had a lot of parents ask me, you know, if my child was going to desist, how long would it take and what I tell them is, we don't know. And if anyone says they do, they're probably wrong because this is a new new cohort and we're still living through it. We don't really know. I've heard stories of kids desisting after a few months and then I've heard stories of kids seven or eight years later, which is shocking, desisting. So um, I just don't think we have a lot of information because... You know, the the puberty blocker studies and the early affirmation, it may not even have the same outcomes today, given how different our culture is and how detransition is becoming much more common. And there are kids identifying as trans, but not taking any medications. Like this is a new world. So I don't know if our old information about desistance and persistence is going to apply very well right now.
1: Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because I find people cling on to the 85 80% desistance thing. And I'm like, yeah, that was that was the old world. That was pre this gender explosion. And we we can't we it's it's comparing apples and oranges, and we actually don't know. And anybody who says they know, anybody who's given you a timeline. Be very wary. Be very wary because I, I think it's quite clear that we're in the middle of it and we don't know. A lot of people talk about maybe five to 10 years for detransition, that there's a cycle there. There's some sort of, I know the Swedish study that was a very long-term study over 40 years of people who trans, that there's a plummet after 10 years. So that that That's kind of interesting because that's before any sort of trans explosion. While this new one, we don't know who are these kids. Like I see in my own kids, teen, my teenagers' class, there's loads of gender, loads of gender stuff happening. This wasn't happening five years ago in Ireland in this level, and so I, uh, my feeling is they'll cycle through this. That this is what's going to happen in Ireland. Who knows? I might be completely wrong, but I haven't seen. All I know about the timeline is that it comes in like a rocket. <laughs> There's generally an unknown period of time where the child was nurturing it and the parent wasn't aware. So it feels like it came in like a rocket, but it mightn't have actually. It might, it might have been very slowly being built and it feels to the parents that arrived like a juggernaut, but they found out about it very quickly. Uh, Not very quickly, they found Mm -hmm. out, but in a very Mm -hmm. large chunk Mm -hmm. after maybe six months, 18 months of of the child studying it. I hope I'm making sense here. And then it tends to linger. That's my feeling that I'm not seeing too often. I know I've met a few parents that they came to meetings. They were the child was very early in the identification and the, the parents did quite radical things like brought them off for summer, you know, on a road trip and things like that. And those kids moved out of trans identification, but generally when it comes, it tends to linger. That's what I've noticed. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I would say the same thing is true. And I think um I just wanna anyone who's listening, you know, who might be researching a lot of the gender critical materials, which I think are very important and very valuable because they offer a counterpoint to affirmation. But I also wanna just lift up the caveat that um there, I don't believe that there's a specific point in time, for example, where the kid is a in a point of no return. I have seen young people desist or detransition at so many different stages in the process that are sometimes surprising. Like, for example, I know that it, it sometimes feels like beginning a medical process makes it a lot harder to come out of the identity, which could have been true. I think in previous years when they were medicalizing kids, with yeah. like the puberty blockers and the Dutch protocol. I think that's true. But I think now there are so many unexpected stories of the way this is showing up, how kids are conceptualizing themselves, what the meaning of medical intervention uh, is. I think it's shifting and taking on a new kind of um, significance all the time. And I, I'm hoping and I'm thinking that medical intervention is going to be de-emphasized even within the affirmative care model. I have a suspicion about that because I think on one hand, there's the um, complete uh, access granted to anybody who wants medical intervention, like the radical, radical trans activists say that is a human right to have access to these medical interventions. But I actually think the, the young people, especially, I mean, I, I have to say, I'm, I really enjoy the kids that I work with, they're all incredibly intelligent. And I think a lot of them are starting to feel a bit suspicious towards the medical industry. And I think there's going to be a whole new cohort of trans kids who have a, their own conception of what it means to be trans. And they're going to say, you know get your medical equipment off our bodies. We don't need you. We can be trans and we don't need any kind of modification. So I suspect and wonder about and think that that might be the next wave. And even though it's not the most logically coherent perspective, because it's not the same thing as saying gender dysphoria is a medical condition. And in order to treat it, you need to transition. But you know what? I think it's a lot healthier to have the kind of autonomy and freedom from being a medical patient forever, even if you have some unusual ideas about what it means to call yourself a man or a woman.
1: Wow. Uh, I see this, I think, in real life in Ireland, because there isn't such an emphasis on medicalizing children in Ireland. And I see these trans-identified kids who are just not even thinking about medication. It's not in their brains there. And they're like, my mommy thinks I'm going to be medicating. I'm not going to medicate. I wouldn't touch it. It's crazy. It'd be really bad for me. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) do you know what I mean? So I see actually this being said, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I would love to see uh this feeling of the, the the children sticking it to the man like and kind of realizing that there's this is a lucrative industry and we're not going to be a part of it wouldn't be wouldn't it be fabulous it kind of reminds me of the berlin wall and when the berlin wall f- finally came down in 1989 all it took was that the tourism government uh authority said oh no um, anybody can leave and uh, the journalist said sorry anybody can leave and he said yeah, he was actually making a mistake in real time, and it oh. was on telly. And he said, "Yeah, anybody can leave," and so everybody went to the border. Like apparently, we can leave, and the uh, soldiers didn't shoot. And then everybody started. Go- that how- it was just such a strange ending to like forty years of of intense it's rule. It's all
0: anticlimactic in a way. Like it's not a huge <laughs> yeah, totally. it revolution. Like- it's just like a miscommunication <laughs> brought it all to an end. <laughs> it
1: was- that's ungenuine. That's exactly what it was. He kind of messed up, and he was kind of scratching his head. And the journalists were like, "What, really?" And it was being recorded. It was on telly, and that's how it happened. And the soldiers' key thing: the soldiers didn't shoot when uh, people started leaving. And so this could end in a kind of little kind of like this. That the children just say, "I'm not going to medical. I I hear it often." That I'm trans, but I'm not going to medicalize. The medical thing seems a bit much. And I yeah, great. Bring it on. I, I really think that would be perfectly fine. It's just another and honestly, honestly, one thing that the gender explosion has lifted is this heavy emphasis on on looks has really impacted children in in such and the heavy emphasis, all those selfies and all those photos that we've taken of our children thousands of photos from the time the child is uh, like less than a week old we've got hundreds of photos and it goes on and on and it hasn't gone well and so I think that has been lifted in a very big way by these children, it's something to do with the looks, the emphasis on gender, the emphasis on gender roles on your brand as such and I think there, I do think that has been a major factor on society we hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We
0: work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme
1: and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit RethinkIME.org to learn more.
0: And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people.
1: If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show.
0: You, you touched on um, the kind of parents that you have met through the GDSN who have desisted kids. And I want to talk a little bit about what, what have parents done in your experience that has been successful in helping their kid to um, stay mentally healthy, stay engaged in life, continue on with the developmental tasks. And oftentimes that can lead to desistance, right? Because what, what often happens is that a kid takes on a trans identity and that takes over their life. They start dropping out of all their favorite hobbies. They get depressed. They lose their friendships. That's not healthy. So what have families done in your experience, those kind of radical interventions that help keep their kid just on a healthy path?
1: Yeah, well, radical interventions is a key point that they I, I've noticed among these parents is they've had the confidence to 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 carry out a radical intervention because you have to be very confident to say, I'm going to bring them. I'm going to bring them down you know, to South America for the summer. And everybody else is telling me, no, no, they need their friends. And no, no, they need that. And they're like, no, I know what my children need and I'm going to do it. Or I'm going to move school. And everybody And so I, I think that the quiet confidence of the parents is a very bitter pill for other parents who, like myself, who are less confident in their parenting to hear about. That it's the confident parents that have that kind of authority and think, I'll, I'll take this decision. On my head, it will be, and I'm willing to make quite a significant change. In some, I've seen, you know, parents move, move house. I've seen parents move school. I've seen parents um, go away for an extended break. And each time I've been a little bit wide-eyed, but I'm wide-eyed after the event of the child has desisted and they're telling me, and I'm like, had they told me before... I think I would have been biting my mm-hmm. lip going, really? Are you mm-hmm. sure? You know, and that took, I think they, they tended, to, they often have a strong hangover of a lack of faith in the in the institutions, a lack of faith in society that really hits them very hard. If they had the confidence or some sort of wherewithal strength inside to say, I'm going to get my kid out. That's, I, I think that's that's very difficult to hear, but it is something I have noticed.
0: I mean, this lifts up something that we talked a lot about at the retreat and we've talked about on the podcast before is just, um, I think the, the level of parental authority when paired with a really strong relationship with their child can be kind of a game changer, right? Because like, let's say you don't have a strong relationship with your child and you just use this kind of iron fist in parenting, that is not going to be successful, right? And on the other hand, if you have an incredibly close relationship, but your child holds all the power in the family, it's going to be very hard for you to use your kind of love and relationship to influence them in a positive way. So it's like this combination of authority and also connection and, and one thing that I've noticed, like, in desistance stories that have come across my path over the last six or seven years is, like, parents who are able to find a healthy support system, it, not only through parent groups, though that can be incredibly transformative, but also, like, if you can find a therapist who can help you kind of coaching you on your parenting, but a therapist who understands the gender thing, right? So not a therapist who's telling yeah. you to just affirm and go along with it. But a lot of parents I've met said, at the beginning of this, I was a total mess. I would like burst into tears every time we talked about gender. And then I got a therapist and she just helped me figure out how to show up and be the kind of parent that I want to be, how to be confident, right? How to find my authority. And that's really, really important. So I think, I think we're talking about parents who are kind of Like proactive, right? I think that that's the element that I'm hearing and what you're
1: saying and what I'm saying. Yeah, that's a very good point. Proactive. Um, I I do think that, you know, there's a. am sure I've said it before, there's a therapist in Ireland who doesn't see the children and only sees the parents. And I do think that's a a very well-known therapist. And I do think that's a really good idea. I do think that this idea of get me a therapist for my child is maybe... Significantly wrong headed sometimes, and sometimes actually, support for the parent to make sure that they have a family and a household that they want can have more of an impact than the child being brought to therapy, and as in, you have the problem, what's wrong with you? And it, it kind of lets the parents off the hook in a way. When actually, it's there's more, maybe there's more help to be got if the if the if the. Child, parent goes and anyway there's very few therapists out there for the children and there's a lot more out there for the parents because a lot of therapists won't work with teenagers these days because they're afraid of you know inappropriate accusations of conversion therapy and things like that and so I, I think some some parents believe that there will be no therapists out there for them and I'm like they will, they'll see you, they mightn't see your kid but they'll see you Not not half as many We'll see the teenagers. Um, I do want to ask you though: Do you think resistance manifests differently in boys? Yeah, um,
0: I can't speak with as much confidence with the boys, but I will say that the stories that I'm more kind of know more intimately have been really out of the blue and surprising. Um, I think. I think the boys take longer to desist. I mean, I know that's like a rumor, but I that is anecdotally been confirmed in my experience. It's, it's a longer journey. I don't know why exactly, but they seem to be a little bit more stubborn, I guess.
1: <laughs> um, what do you think? I think from what I've, again, we've only got our own... You know, quite limited, but also more extensive than many people's experience yeah. of, of this world. <laughs> and what I've noticed with the boys is it's black and white. It's like, and then one day I woke up, and that's it. It's over. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's quite extreme. Yes, yes. Just like when it walk, they walk in. It's extreme. It's like I'm I'm a, I'm a woman, and now I'm going to get hormones and I'm I've no interest in dressing and I've no interest in anything like that I'm I'm just going for the real thing and then when they're out of it it's like no I've moved on I've decided uh I'm not going to be a girl I'm 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 going a different direction yeah I have to say it feels very testosterone like to me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? yeah that kind of definitive <laughs> we yes definitive and clear and um uh, women are more we we sidle up to things in a a more subtle way and we're more all body. And I think sometimes the male kind of testosterone is very specific very you. you know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, That's my read of it, but it means that I think parents don't see the desistance coming with the males. It just happens. You can do less. Yeah. As far as I can see. Yeah, for sure.
0: I think it's really interesting. Um, what about the traits of the, the young person or the desisting person? Do you think there are certain common denominators or traits that make a person more likely to desist?
1: I think in my, in my experience, the kids who have kept some sort of hand on other lives are, are more likely to come out of it. So that might be, they might have remained in their sports team or they might have remained in the band or something. Anything that wasn't just, if they've totally gone all in, it's harder to, to come out. And if they can, if there's there's some friends in their life that are not completely wedded to this whole thing, who are just rolling with it, they might, you know, there might be a friend. I think that's a, a golden thread that I have noticed, definitely. Um, yeah. And what about yourself?
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's true. I think the way I think about it is like a dilution, right? So like if gender is the only thing in a person's life, it's very concentrated, but if gender is one thing among many, many, many things that the kid cares about, it dilutes the obsession and the power. And so I think that's a great way to continue having new perspectives on things, you know, keeping yourself engaged and, and it's even sometimes something kind of mundane. Like I remember um, this is a long time ago. This is like the the second wave of desisters and detransitioners when Peak Resilience Project was together, which is Helena and oh, Dagny yeah. and Jesse. And who was the fourth person?
1: It feels like an age. Yeah, um,
0: they, they were talking about how. I think for, for a couple of them, we're saying, you know, once I had bills to pay and I had to have a job and I wasn't just, a, oh, Kiera, duh, Kiera is number four. And I wasn't of just course. sitting in my room yeah. on the Internet, like obsessing over gender. It just like had less power in my life. So sometimes it's just a matter of meeting the kind of developmental tasks that are present in your life as a teenager or a 20 year old or something. Once you're busy with life, sometimes this just becomes less intense
1: well and that's what I've heard as well from detransitioners like when other things came into my life I, I did this just seemed like a hassle and I didn't need to be doing it so it's amazingly similar it's but and that's why we always talk about expanding the child's life you know what I mean bringing more things in and they want to narrow it all down as in I've got one holy solution and this is to be gripped um I I think it's it's nice to hear i've heard a couple of schools i've been working with and they've talked about a culture of desistance and i think that's a a beautiful kind of concept that like maybe if one kid desists in the group other people desist and i've definitely noticed that that one kid desisting gives permission to people in that school to desist uh it's 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 ex- almost frightening to see the power of one kid, you know, well, either desisting contagion. or transing. It yeah, goes I, know. Both direction.
0: Yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah, it's something, uh, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I, I, I just feel that so many people are at the mercy of waiting for the social contagion to come round. If you follow me, and it's very hard to force it. And yet, the environment really matters. If your kid is in, like, super trans, super, super, super affirming you really are asking them to effectively uh, push against a wind that is really a heavy wind. Why would you ask the kid to do that? You, You try to create a climate that is kind of conducive to some sort of movement.
0: That's right. I think that's so important because mitigating unhelpful influences is like number two strategy. It's always like build your connection, mitigate unhelpful influences, one of which is... The internet, right? Yeah. If there's a, I mean, if you and dad or you and mom are literally the only two people in the whole world of your child disagreeing with their identity, and everyone else is treating this like the best thing that's ever happened, it doesn't matter how knowledgeable you are. It doesn't matter how. Uh, you know what strategies you try to accrue throughout the years. You are really in in an uphill battle. So uh, just to kind of touch on what you said about the GDSN parents, I completely understand why sometimes parents decide to take pretty drastic means to just get their kid out of the little bubble. Go yeah. expand your life. Go connect with other people. Go experience different ways to live and be. And go, be. yeah.
1: And that's, I I think we lost a lot back in the day. People used to, like, I used to visit my granddad every summer because that's what we did for a holiday, if you me. And, you know, there's real wealth in go and visit your sister and stay there. And I know she'll annoy you, but honestly, it's good for the kids. It doesn't have to be throw money at her and go in a hotel. There's sometimes more wealth in go and visit the family in other areas. And one, you're giving them a a kind of a a context of the, you know, the the bloodline, the different lives, the different kind of parts of our family. And then as well as that, you're giving them a a different world, a different view of themselves. And So many parents, I feel, um, not just parents, but so many families, they keep it secret within the family because they don't want to let it out. And... It's it's sad reflection of our world. I completely understand it, but it's sad. It feels very sad to me that we're, we're kind of putting the best foot forward to our sisters and our brothers and our, our moms and our dads. And we would be better if we felt more like a family and thought like we're having a bit of trouble. Would me and the kid be able to come over and stay for two weeks? I know it's a hassle. I know it's an imposition. But honestly, I think it could do as a, a you know, a real power of good. I'd love if we could revert to that a little bit rather than we just go to hotels and it's swimming pools and vacuous. It's it's the
0: whole, it takes a village concept, right? And and the kind of acknowledgement that sometimes kids need the extended family supports too. And it doesn't have to be like we go to grandparents and we're going to talk about gender, but just, you know, to get, to get the kid around people that loves them, people that love them and people that enjoy their company and have fun with your cousins. I mean, those are really valuable things. And as you say this, I'm also just thinking about a whole other category of desistance stories that have to do with traveling. I know so many families who picked up and moved to like another country for six months or whatever. I mean, of course you have to have the means to do that. But interestingly, COVID has facilitated some of that, too, because everybody was working online. So, you know, I'm aware of a, a friend and colleague who also happens to be a therapist whose daughter was um, actually getting ready to go to a gender clinic appointment as a teenager. And they picked up and they, they moved for, I think, something like a year to um, the, the mom's native country. And daughter picked up the language. And she kind of developed a friend group. She had, kind of had to start from scratch. And just being in a different culture gave her a totally new perspective, and she desisted. And she, she thought that American culture was kind of toxic regarding gender, and that's why she had dysphoria, was because of American culture. So it's an interesting perspective, mm. and getting out, getting out of your bubble.
1: When, you move, when you're a kid, especially when you're a teenager, and you go to another context, you see another side of yourself. So when you go to, let's say, your granddad and he says, you remind me of my auntie Eileen, she was just like you. And you're kind of going, oh, my God, am I like somebody mm-hmm. who lived 100 years ago? Yeah. That's very powerful yeah. and very moving to somebody who's on a kind of a voyage of discovery of who they are. To hear that there was another person who lived 50 years ago that you apparently looked like and act like. It's it's kind of mind blowing when it happens. And there's only people like your granddad or your uncle who really you'll believe. Your parents might say you can't even hear them. But when somebody who's a bit more distant and has no skin in the game is just saying, God, she's very like Auntie Eileen. That has a lot of power. So that's one thing. But the second thing is the traveling thing. I've seen parents and they very nervously, for example, sent the kid to stay with their daddy, who hadn't covered himself in glory till now, but it was a different social context and it worked. Again, it's the feeling of being around people that maybe know you, And it's a different cultural context. I think it has, this is an Americanized concept. There's no doubt. After Paul Vasey and all our interviews, it's quite clear. This is, it really was kind of given birth to in America, as far as I can see. And it's been taken on because I swear to God, all the teenagers around here have American accents, even though I'm in rural Ireland. Ah, yeah, it's really noticeable. I shouldn't say they all have, but it's a thing.
0: Can you do I'm your there. best American accent for our audience, Stella?
1: Oh, okay. I'll try. I can't. No,
0: I'm, Just too, come shy. On. I'm too shy. Everyone's okay. going to be
1: waiting for it now. Okay, okay. I got it. I can't. No. <laughs> I've got performance <laughs> anxiety. I'm literally blushing.
0: You are. Stella has turned pink. She looks like a strawberry with hair. I have. <laughs> I have.
1: No, I can't do an American accent. It's too embarrassing. But anyway, a lot of kids have this American accent. And there's an Americanism. This feels like an American import over here. And the more it gets seen as this is an American cultural thing that has happened. And it's, it's, it's accepted that there's other cultures that look on it in a very different way. And I'd be all for bringing to Samoa Bring them to South Africa, bring them to different places, let them see other cultures navigating things. I think that's really powerful. And I'm surprised, if I'm honest, more families who tell me about, for example, the two big influences is the Internet. The second is the school. And I'm like, well, you can definitely do something about those two things. You, you really can. You can go to a place for the summer with bad Wi-Fi that has a different cultural context. You can do that. It just takes a lot of effort. And sometimes when you're filled with fear, you can be paralyzed. And that's what I think happens with the, with the parents. And instead, they get completely paralyzed into knowledge as opposed to pull out of that and, and take, take a move. I think it's got much more impact.
0: That's huge, Stella, because I I think parents sometimes feel like they have to debate their kid out of the trans identity. And I think what we're saying is in all these desistance stories, what tends to make a difference is actually way beyond the gender. It is not in the context of discussions at home in the bedroom. It is in the context of living your life, expanding your child's perspective, thinking outside of the box, you know, getting creative with how to do this. Because every family has kind of a different level of resources and means. But there are creative ways. Um, I remember one time I was running a parent meeting. And a couple of parents showed up. And behind them were like a set of string lights. And it turns out that they had bought a van and like decked out the van or the RV. And they were on a giant road trip with their child, which (laughs) was fantastic. I mean, that's a great idea. I know lots of families (laughs) who decide to do that cross country road trip they've always wanted to do. So yeah. thinking outside the box is really important and it's not just about gender and politics and debating and language. It's it's broadening and it's big picture things.
1: Yeah. Oh that's lovely. What do you think parents should do, because it's a common scenario where the kid seems to have desisted. There's a bit of a silence around the whole issue, but they seem to have, but the name is remaining and the pronoun is mm, remaining. Mm-hmm. And it feels like everybody's gone into a, a kind of stagnancy. Yeah. I'm always a bit uneasy about that scenario. And I hear it quite often. I really do hear it quite often. Well,
0: I guess a, a couple of things come to mind. I mean, First of all, I'm thinking about what you said regarding that the name is a totally different thing than the pronouns. I mean, if your kid has returned to their birth sex pronouns, but they've kind of adopted this other name, it might be really heartbreaking for you as a parent because, of course, their name means something and it's important to you, but... I wouldn't want to die on that hill. You know, it's not that important if your child is overall well and healthy and vibrant and they're being themselves and they're, they're good to go. Um, I, uh, another part of me feels like if a significant amount of time has elapsed, right, where it seems like they're pretty solid and comfortable in their birth sex identity or they're, they're happy and they're doing well in in periods of transition it might be worth a conversation so for example going from i mean this is not happening in middle school but middle school to high school in america high school to college college to your first job
1: oh yeah you know
0: it, it that might be valuable to say you know a lot of times when we transition from high school to college for example it's a chance for a fresh start nobody really knows us I mean, it might be if you are kind of wondered about going back to your birth name, it might be an, a, an opportunity to experiment with that there, um, a new job, you know, like any kind of new place, you can uh, treat it like an experiment.
1: And it's very common for, for many, many generations. It's been very common for kids when they're teenage years to have a name that they don't keep. Yeah. That in their 20s they lose it. Like that's really common. I know there were nicknames, but they were really, really commonly used. So yeah. I can think of kids that I knew and they were, everybody called them that name. And then you meet them when they're 25 and you call them that name, they go, oh no, that's not my name. Anymore. I've gone back to the, the original name. And it's only people from that era that call me that. Do you know what I mean? That 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 happened very often.
0: I know there was there was a kid from my middle school whose name was Cockroach, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that if <laughs> if I caught up with him now, he's in his forties. I'm sure he's not going by Cockroach anymore. <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's a blo- there was a bloke in my town called Smiley, which is lovely Smiley, and I met him a while ago, and I said, "Oh, Smiley," and he looked. <laughs> I obviously haven't been called it for 20 years like what sort of fool are you calling me small,
0: Stella's in regression she's still pretending she's a child
1: <laughs> that's pretty funny and I was the one who was embarrassed I was really like oh yeah sorry I suppose that probably was a nickname <laughs> and you probably do have a real name <laughs> yeah I think it happens very often and it's just it happened this time in a very serious context with a very heavy weight on it. So the parent has come to hate that name and hate everything it stands for. And yet you and I are kind of going, ah, let that go, let that go. I think the pronouns, personally, I, I would be moving towards, if at all possible, the birth sex pronouns. I, I really do think it. There's something about the other. Well, I might be wrong. I'm, you know, but I, I, my own feeling is there's something feeling con- incongruous about using the opposite sex when when it it doesn't make sense anymore. And as sometimes,
0: well. I mean, that, that can be a bit of a barrier to desistance. Like if a kid is still yeah. in high school, and let's say, in grade nine or 10, they came out as trans and asked all their teachers to use this other pronoun, maybe by grade 12, they're back to being pretty gender typical. They're not making a big deal about pronouns at the restaurant or at Starbucks or whatever, but the school is still using the pronouns they asked for two years ago. You know, that might be an opportunity to say, Hey, you know, and again, be very careful because if you push too hard or if the kid can feel like you're trying to do something, it might just create a little bit of friction, but that might be a time to say, looks like you don't really care what pe- what pronouns people use in public. I'm wondering when you go to college, how do you think you'll apply? Are you going to put she, her again? You know, you just, you might, or you might see what they say on their yeah. application. But if there's a kid who's ostensibly desisted in every other way, and the last holdout is the pronouns that they asked their teachers to use two years ago, I wouldn't be surprised if their college application has first sex pronouns in it.
1: I have seen on applications, well, I have heard tell of applications where the parents said, maybe you should put in your birth sex pronouns as well as the other ones. And they have. Yeah. So he, him, she, her. <laughs> like all the above. And fair enough. <laughs> take it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you, them. But um, I, I think what you're lifting is so important that all of those periods of transition from, from, you know, middle school to high school, high school to college, any sort of movement where there's a new group, new context, they are very good times for. Well, would you like to make any changes? You know what I mean. They really are. They're good. They're, they're now obviously that makes it very tense for the parents, and it can feel like entrenchment can happen and things like that. So, it, it, if you were to plan something, to plan it before that move is yeah. a good time to do it.
0: Yeah.
1: I guess
0: the moral of many stories here is handle all of this lightly. If this becomes too heavy and you're like pining after desistance with every single word you utter to your child, it makes it really hard on you and on the kid. So we would just encourage listeners to to hold it lightly.
1: And you are probably pining after desistance with every cell in your body. And maybe acknowledge that by getting therapy yourself to to help you hold it lightly, because it's so hard. It's just so hard.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way
1: to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktoyour.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational
0: purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.